Empire Babies, this is Abby Martin, and thank you for listening to the Empire Files podcast. This is a patron-only podcast, so thank you so much for your support. Your support is what makes this show possible. I've only respected a couple politicians in my life. One of them is Dennis Kucinich. Dennis Kucinich was formerly the mayor of Cleveland, Ohio, before spending 16 years as a United States congressman, where he served until 2013. He also ran for president twice in the Democratic Party primary and is currently running again to be the mayor of Cleveland almost 45 years after his first term. Throughout his political career, he's always been willing to speak his mind and he's never shied away from controversy, regardless of the costs. Sometimes the issues he advocated for seemed decades ahead of his time like lobbying for trans rights 20 years ago, an issue that's only recently been normalized in the Democratic Party. In his 2004 presidential campaign, Kucinich said he would appoint a trans justice to the Supreme Court, something that sparked the ire of many and was the source of ridicule by even liberal pundits like Jon Stewart. Kucinich was also marginalized for speaking candidly about seeing UFOs, something the intelligence community discusses as a reality today. Kucinich came onto my radar as a staunch opponent of war, having introduced articles of impeachment against George W. Bush and Dick Cheney for launching the Iraq war on false pretenses. He called Obama's NATO airstrikes on Libya an impeachable offense and tried to create a department of peace throughout his congressional tenure. I had the chance to catch Dennis between campaign events to discuss his views and new book, The Division of Light and Power, which details the epic power battle between himself as a young mayor of Cleveland and a corporation that was trying to bankrupt the city's energy grid. Dennis, it's great to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining me on the Empire Files podcast. Uh, thank you. It's been a while. Thanks. So, Dennis, your new book, Division of Light and Power, is about this epic battle between you, a young city councilman turned mayor of Cleveland, against this massive electrical company that wanted to privatize the city's energy grid. I mean, the saga sounds like something out of like the 1930s where the Pinkerton gang was acting as the brute arm of corporate power to crush dissent. This company punished your city by imposing blackouts essentially buying out the media. Media, uh, Talk about what else they did to try to force this deal. Well, you've, you've encapsulated it very well. Um, and it, actually, the book has been compared to the story of the movie Chinatown, uh, where that was about water and Cleveland was about uh, an attempt to control electricity in the city. And the book's a story of corporate sabotage, of espionage, of... Uh, of a of an illegal attempt to try to force the city of Cleveland to sell our municipally owned electric system to the private uh, Cleveland Electric Illuminating Company at a discount price. And when I organized the campaign, the block of sale that had been consummated, a high-powered rifle shot missed my head by a fraction, uh, which you know was of course a warning. I got elected mayor and uh, an assassination plot uh, uh, was underway. I was informed by police intelligence. And later on, I learned it was about the light system that I was told that I was stopping some people from making a lot of money. 
Now, you have to remember that at this time, Cleveland was the number three corporate capital in the world, or not in the world, in the United States, uh, behind New York and Chicago. And it was also uh, the bombing capital, where organized crime was very active in a war for control of loan sharking, gambling, prostitution, drugs. And people, you know, groups were blowing each other up. But they, the mob also had its hooks into City Hall. So this was no small matter, taking on this, these interest groups to try to save a little electric system so people could save 20% on their electric bill. You narrowly missed a bullet. I mean, sitting in your own home uh, from these thugs that were trying to kill you. I mean, outright assassinate you, Dennis, so early on, uh, you know, as someone who's just trying to do the right thing here. And then again, uncovering another assassination plot by these same sinister forces. I mean, basically going all out to try to completely destroy your political career. Yeah, when you consider that um, all I was trying to do was to make sure that people had a choice, that they could buy electricity for 20% less. Uh, you You can understand that uh, just that simple principle of choice, of people having the ability to choose cheaper power, how that that was under attack, you know, not just municipal ownership, but the whole principle of freedom. And so, you know, I, I'm, um, uh, you know, the book uh, ends up uh, being an account, it's a very personal account of this journey that I took to, uh, uh, to an awareness of exactly what was happening inside the city, uh, for whom the city was being run and whose interests. And uh, when I became mayor, my obligation to stand up for the economic rights of the people, no matter what the pressure was coming from whatever. Well, especially sector. knowing that you, they wanted you dead, Dennis. I mean, that that's not um, something to take very lightly, yet you were steadfast in your determination. You continued to fight these huge corporate forces that really had all the power. I mean, as you said, that Cleveland City Hall is the board boardroom of Cleveland's banks, investor-owned utilities, big real estate, and the mafia. I mean, you just mentioned that at the time, Cleveland was known as America's bombing capital because of basically this war by all these crime syndicates. Um, and there was a 30 year, or I'm sorry, 30 mob related bombings and and political uh, assassinations. I mean, that is that's stunning. Dennis. I don't think people really realize how crazy that history is. Well, you know, I can tell you that uh, at the core of the story is this effort to uh, of the Cleveland uh, establishment and all of their friends to try to force me to sell our municipal electric system. And, uh, you know, the, the, the mob's involvement with a plot was, you know, was just one part of it. I mean, you got to keep in mind that uh, the banks, which had a power all of their own, uh, decided, and Cleveland Trust in particular decided on December 15, 1978, that the price of civic peace was for me to sell our city's electric system to this Cleveland Electric Limited Company, which it turns out the bank was a business partner. And when I said no, uh, the bank threw the city into default on loans I hadn't even taken out. So they were using credit as a weapon, and they were using extortion, trying to literally extort 
our public electric system from the city, uh, uh, you know, using credit uh, as a means of forcing the city to its knees if I did not capitulate. And so, you know, I was 31 years old when I became mayor. Uh, this, uh, you know, I, I didn't realize the, how quickly the stakes would mount. And I think they probably felt that since I was so young, they would be able to just uh, push through their agenda. But for me, it was a simple commitment to the people that, you know, this electric system belonged to the people of Cleveland. It wasn't mine to give away. It wasn't mine to sell. It wasn't mine to auction off to the highest bidder. It wasn't mine to feather my own political career's interest by by, uh, capitulating. And this was just kind of a case study. And I think the larger coup d'etat, the corporate coup d'etat, that happened around the country, Dennis, at this time. I mean, all of the... The way you just put it, you know, I had people who came to my office with a, uh, uh, when I was mayor, with a documentary about what American corporations did in Chile to Salvatore Allende. And, you know, I'm not saying that what happened in Cleveland uh, had the uh, importance of what happened in Chile, but I am saying that the parallels were interesting, where corporate interests were trying to make sure that they regained control of, of a country. And here, corporate interests were trying to regain control of a city. And their their feeling was that unless they did, that... Um, Uh, that their power would somehow be diminished. And so it was a power play on a scale that the country uh, had not seen. And as you alluded to, uh, you know, corporations knocking off a duly elected city government, uh, you know, doing it openly (laughs) uh, is, Mm -hmm. uh, is something that's worthy of note. And it was all about, you know, my unwillingness to uh, to go along with uh, this ag- corporate agenda, which principally was about selling the municipal electric system to the Cleveland Electric Illuminating Company. You know, and here we are this many decades later, and it just seems like if, you know, if there are more people like you, Dennis, maybe this country would be better off because the neoliberalization and the privatization of all of these utilities, all of these things that should be within the public sector have just further plunged our country into despair. It's it's very tragic when you really see what has happened. I mean, and you were really in, at the cutting edge of this and they they pulled all the punches out. I mean, they really did not hold back. They tried to recall you I mean, you were under such threat and duress that you had to wear like a bulletproof vest when you served that, you know, pitch at the Cleveland Indians game. It's just unbelievable um, what you went through, Dennis, to just try to do something that just seems so logical. You are a public servant. You are trying to serve the public. End of story. Well, you know, thank you for that. And, you know, the relevance of this story is that once the American Rescue Plan money runs out, cities are going to be under pressure to privatize again. They'll be under pressure to privatize electric systems, water systems, sewer systems, city services. There was a Cleveland mayor who uh, 
of whom the uh, famed writer Lincoln Steffens in his book, Shame of the Cities, wrote that Tom Johnson, mayor of Cleveland at the turn of the 20th century, was the best mayor of the best governed city in America. And it was Tom Johnson who established public power and also established a competitive public streetcar company at the time to provide lower fares for people and really came up with this idea of of, of municipal ownership as being uh, linked directly to uh, the democratic tradition of America. And what he said was this. He said, I believe in uh, in municipal ownership of uh, public service facilities, of parks, of schools, of waterworks, of electric systems. Because if you do not own them, they will in time own you. They'll rule your politics, corrupt your institutions, and finally destroy your liberties. And this is exactly what was underway in Cleveland. The utility ruled the city's politics, forced uh, the city to uh, shut down its generators so it couldn't produce its own power, uh, blocked the city from getting power from outside and forced the city to buy power from then triple the rate so the city would blow a hole in the city's budget. They created outages on the city system. And they corrupted the institutions of the city so that the media, the corporate institutions, both political parties were all in on trying to force the sale of Muni Light. And the final question is the question of liberty. Um, you know, I took a stand. I knew what the price would be. It would, you know, be my career at the least. And, you know, there's some things more important than holding an office. It's what, what we stand for in life. Who are we? Ultimately, that's a question every one of us has to face. Who are we? What's our life about? And so I had a moment that I had to make a choice, and I made it. And, you know, no regrets whatsoever. And I, you know, have the same fierceness of resolve and intensity today that I had then. To me, you know, it's, you got to stand for something. Well, I mean, that that's quite obvious throughout your illustrious political career, which I want to, you know, touch upon. I mean, First, let's talk about these special interests because, you know, it is fascinating. I don't know if Cleveland was kind of a, you know, a stark example of this because of the role the mafia played as, you know, as as kind of the brute arm of, of these corporate powers. But, I mean, I'm assuming this is kind of how it works across the country, Dennis, right? Well, you know, Cleveland, are there variations of this? Of course. Am I saying nothing like mm. this ever happened anywhere? No, I mean... I documented it. Uh, you know, people can compare notes with what's happened in other cities. And I think people who are reading it will find that there's some things going on in their community right now, which will parallel uh, uh, stories uh, and, and scenes from the book. But, you know, the, the bottom line here is the question of who's in charge, who rules? Is it, is it are, you know, are, are the are elected officials making the decisions? or decisions being made uh, behind closed doors in boardrooms of banks, utilities, uh, other corporate interests that have nothing to do with the broad-based interests of the people. I mean, it's really the ultimate question here. Uh, you know, government works, as I point out in the book, government absolutely works. Question is, who's it working for? And that's the question that is raised over and over in the division of light and power. Because what I was able to demonstrate is that the only way that government was going to work for the people is if someone took a stand on their behalf. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a great point, and it kind of points to 
the illogical nature of privatization models because uh. you're just removing the aspect of democracy in terms of how are you going to interact and engage with these companies. I mean, they are just they just act like private tyrannies. You have no democratization whatsoever and there's no ability to move these companies whatsoever. So it is a very dangerous road that we've gone down. But in the Absolutely. end of this epic battle, Dennis, you did win, at least in Cleveland. I mean, you you resisted the pressure to privatize the grid. You ended up saving the city hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, how did that feel to you know, walk away with your head held high knowing that you did win this David versus Goliath battle at that moment? Well, you know what? At, in the moment when you're in it, you, you don't think about, you don't know where it's going long term. I didn't know I'd have a career again after what happened in Cleveland. I mean, I, I, I couldn't get a job in this city, let alone run for an office for quite some time. But uh, when um, the city announced it was expanding the electric system in 1993, which you know was f 15 years after uh, the default. At that point, people said, wait a minute, we wouldn't have a light system if Dennis hadn't taken a stand. That was the moment when things began to revolve in another direction of an understanding of the importance of public power. And today, uh, unfortunately, because of some bad decisions, public power in Cleveland is once again in trouble. Uh, mm -hmm. But today, as uh, fate would have it, uh, I am once again a candidate for mayor of Cleveland, 44 years later, ready to go back to not just uh, protect an electric system and the public's right to own that, uh, but to look at some of the broader issues regarding municipal governance that, um, that I raised uh, years ago and more uh, that needs to be addressed uh, in this present day and age. Absolutely. And you took a short break from politics. You returned in 1996. You had this incredible career in Congress that was hugely inspirational for people like me and millions of others of people, Dennis. I mean, from people looking at this institution from the outside, can you explain how being in Congress actually works? Like how much time is spent trying to get money, donors? How much influence do the lobbyists have? Well, if you're, like, talk, if you're talking about... Uh, you know, government at all levels is enthralled to uh, various uh, monetary interests. I was pretty fortunate by the time I got to Congress, which I was elected in 1996. My big comeback election was in 94 when I was elected to the Ohio State Senate. But in 1996, I was elected to Congress. And when I got there in 77, what I quickly discovered is that members of Congress, when they come into town, go to the respective political party headquarters and dial for dollars so they can hold on to their seat because they have to raise millions of dollars because that's what a congressional race costs these days. Um, fortunately, uh, with the advent of the Internet and fundraising, I, uh, you know, I was able to uh, be at the front lash of that to start to raise money online. Uh, so I was I, I didn't I didn't spend in 16 years. Maybe I went to party headquarters two or three times to make phone calls until I just found it disgusting and um, and raised money by a broad subscription as opposed to being you know reliant on one particular interest group or another. 
But uh, Congress people, you know, there's a lot of good people in the Congress, but they're tethered to this rotten system of fundraising, which requires them to uh, spend more time on raising money than they do on making policy. And that's just the way it is. I mean, in order to really be involved in policy in Congress, and everybody has a chance to do that, you have to take time. And if you're busy raising money, that that diminishes your opportunity to really participate in the debates, in the uh, uh, policy making. Congress is, of course, very transactional. But the hyperpartisanship of our present day has made Congress less effective because it all, it's all about gaining control, keeping control or gaining control. And it becomes less and less about the uh, deeper concerns of the American people. It's a tough time for America. And uh, I don't, uh, I have a lot of friends in the House on both sides and, and in the Senate. And I don't envy them for having to work in this particular climate because it's tough. It is getting increasingly more tough, Dennis, to even have a conversation with each other. Um, I mean, in terms of like the lobbyist sphere of influence on the Hill, is it like, you know, I mean, are these people like presenting policy prescriptions on behalf of think tanks? Like how does how is policy actually written? Because how do politicians have time? These bills are huge lengthy. I doubt a lot of them are even read. I mean, talk about that transactional nature of lobbyists and think tanks in terms of Congress. Well, members are often overwhelmed. Uh, You you know, they, I'll give you an example, China trade. Uh, It was a big bill, a lot of implications. You had major American industries lobbying on its behalf. Uh, Unfortunately, they were giving away the store to, to China and undermining American manufacturing interests. But the lobbyists on that bill, there were at least five lobbyists for every member of Congress, which means you had thousands and thousands of people who were combing the halls of Congress, meeting with staff, trying to get meetings with members, trying to coax members into voting for it. They were successful in doing that. And these trade agreements have been devastating, but the lobbyists have enormous ability to be able to influence things. They, you know, it's the same thing with the, uh, with the Pentagon budget, uh, you know, lobbyists come in from little machine shops in your district, and all of a sudden you just—they make you understand how uh, the Department of Defense budget relates to your neighborhood. Uh, does it really? Eh, no, but you know, it certainly appears that way if you have jobs uh, uh, of people in your community relying on, on you know, making a certain product that is uh, participates in defense contracts. So, you know, the. Members are always keeping an eye on what's best for their district uh, as far as jobs, but they're also aware of the various uh, powerful interest groups that could come after them if they vote wrong. And remember, you know, there's always this um, element of fear that's out there that, you know, once you have one of these jobs, which I'll tell you, Congress is one of the best jobs in politics. You remember Congress. It is an important position and once you're there, you don't want to give it up for the most part, unless, you know, you've got family reasons that compel you to return home. So people are, you know, doing the best they can to keep that. And when you challenge the status quo repeatedly, it's not considered, um, it's not considered conducive to job security. So, you know, but I don't, what's different between Congress and other levels of government is the scale. There's a lot more money at stake. 
there's a lot more funds that are being raised. Uh, and instead of, you know, hundreds of thousands at a local level, it's millions, literally millions of dollars that are, are swimming through various campaigns. And, you know, if you're participating at that level, it's a dreadful place. But I never got into that because I didn't really care, you know, who wanted to you know, who wanted to contribute? I, there's some people I'd never take money from and, uh, doesn't mean I wouldn't meet with them and talk to them. I want to find out what they're thinking, but you just don't want to be stigmatized by taking money from certain interests. So, you know, I, 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 and, but it's a tough place, you know, it's good people, but system is thoroughly rotten. And once, uh, the Citizens United decision came down, Buckley versus Aleo, Citizens United, money equals free speech. Katie, bar the door, where you know democracy is on the scaffold. Absolutely, I mean, yeah, that pretty some pretty much uh, put the nail in the coffin right there. But you know, as you're talking about special interests and these huge financial incentive incentives for Congress to kind of maintain the status quo, it's almost like, I mean, the way I see it, it's almost like yeah, a lot of special interests will pay into people's agenda that they already agree with. But I feel like the more dangerous aspect of it is the smearing and marginalization and attack ads paid for by these special interests. If you do not go along with the agenda that they want, oh to look, it's all yeah, you know, exactly. And NRA, the dark money that's entered into funding politics has brought tens us tens of millions of dollars in attack ads against politics. candidates that that don't support their legislation as opposed to driving legislation by endorsing and funding people who already are good on on gun advocacy for the NRA, you know? Um, I don't know if that made any sense. Well, yeah, I mean, again, the dark, you know, dark money has brought about a dark age in American politics, and no one knows where the money's coming from these days. And that's a problem. No one knows what interest group is being, uh, is seeking advantage. And so, um, yeah, you, we'll look back at this point in history and people just shake their heads at how the how the electoral process was basically captured by interest groups. And to be able to fight through that is no small matter, no matter who that person is. And there are people who are trying to do that. But once you get inside, uh, uh, which in some cases can be miraculous, in my case it was, um, you, uh, you have to make a decision to either beat them or join them. Now, the one good thing about having had that experience in Cleveland is that really primed me for the battle. That that got me ready to take on just about anybody, <laughs> including a war, which is why <laughs> when I saw how the city of Cleveland was being gaslighted on this issue of municipal power, I was able to understand how a whole country was gaslighted on the Iraq war, how we just bought, in, bought into it. But I did the analysis. You, anybody goes to a search engine, Kucinich Iraq analysis, October 2nd, 2002, you'll see that I knew spot on right, right when it was happening, how they were lying to us. And so that experience I had in Cleveland was very valuable in that regard. But it also steeled, uh, you know, it, it also fortified me against um, the, um, you know, the blandishments of interest groups that want to bend you to their point of view uh, by putting, uh, you know, ba- you know, bushels full of cash within your reach if you vote right. I never cared about that. And, you know, that's, <laughs> I was able to come through the system without losing my soul, which for me is always <laughs> a priority. Well, no kidding, Dennis. I had no idea that you went through this epic battle 
on a municipal level before getting into Congress and making such waves. I was pretty astonished to read your story. And yeah, no kidding, it prepared you for the battle um, on the national stage. I mean, you know, as as you journeyed throughout this uh, this position, uh, you sponsored some really groundbreaking legislation, universal pre-K, uh, abolishing the death penalty. You were second chairman on the Progressive Caucus behind Bernie Sanders. I mean, you were, you were truly, Dennis, one of a kind. I mean, a rare voice of integrity in, the, in a sea, I'm not going to say sellouts because I know a lot of people are in there to try to do the right thing. It's just that they're embroiled with the corruption and, and, and the, uh, you know, they're confined by the way that the system operates. But you really never were in there for power or access or anything. I mean, I'm sure it was pretty impossible to get anything worthwhile done, given this climate. But let's talk, since you brought up the Iraq war, I mean, as someone who is vehemently anti-war, um, you know, you were a huge critic of the Iraq war. Of course, you voted against it. But not only that, Dennis, you made an incredibly bold statement. And I'll never forget this. This and I know I don't think anyone else will either, because it was such a powerful moment as this country was being propagandized to on a daily basis, fear-mongered. We were in this post-9-11 hysterical climate where it just seemed like the government had carte blanche to do whatever it wanted, including torture, invasions of sovereign nations. I mean, just honestly, it was a terrifying uh time to be alive in this country, Dennis. Um, and you went out there and introduced articles of impeachment against George W. Bush and Dick Cheney for starting the war. It was a huge move. You tried to impeach the president of the United States for war crimes in a post 9-11 climate of terror. Give us that inside story about the pushback that you certainly received from the halls of power. Well, you know, it wasn't anything personal against George Bush or uh, Dick Cheney. And I, I want to state that because, you know, I had a pretty good relationship with uh, Dick Cheney before this, uh, the impeachment. And uh, even after the impeachment, I still was on speaking terms with President Bush. Cause I, but, you know, I considered, I considered George Bush essentially a decent human being, but you know, he had to take responsibility for the lies that took us to war. That's his desk. The buck stopped there. And I saw how the lies that were being told. And so, um, you know, I was right in the middle of of the resistance to the war. I organized 125 Democrats to vote against the Iraq war resolution. I was tracking this on a daily basis and watching the lies come through and watching this this marching band and charter society that was promoting the war uh, uh, come through with one fiction after another and just, you know, throwing everything they could out there and the media picking it up and carrying it forward. And, and I was being told, you're wrong, Dennis, you know, you don't know what you're talking about. America's at risk here. We got weapons of mass destruction. We're going to have to deal with this guy's going to blow us up. And I'm looking, I'm saying, yeah, right. Uh, you don't have to, you haven't made the case. So yeah, there was a lot of pressure that would, the pushback from within my party, uh, and from, of course, uh, Republicans and from the media, it was considered unpatriotic to raise questions about whether or not we were being told the truth. But again, you go to Kucinich, Iraq analysis, October 2nd, 2002, and you'll see how, you know, I laid out chapter and verse uh, the uh, uh, why the war was wrong. And so, you know, I never could have imagined 
the kind of powerful forces that can stir up a war. I mean, that's the ultimate for the world, that a war can be created out of, out of you know, out of fiction, out of, out of you know, and, and make it look like whole cloth, that it was mind-blowing, frankly. And so, you know, one must have, uh, be very grounded and, and aware. And because of my experience in Cleveland, which I recount, you know, in the Division of Light and Power, I, I was totally aware of what was going on in the moment. And I spoke the truth regardless of what the consequences were. Uh, because with, if you get in a position of power, you know, and you start to soft pedal things, you say, well, I don't want to risk anything. No, then why even be there? You got to take a stand. So, you know, uh, I, I mean, my regret if I have any regrets about it, it's this. I think of all those, all those kids, those young Americans who went out there and put their lives on the line, who never, will never come back. About the tens of thousands who were injured, whose lives were permanently ruined. I, I think about the million, million innocent Iraqis who lost their lives, and whose country was totally destroyed by a lie. And I mean, anyone with a heart has to understand how how totally evil and profoundly vicious this was. How 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 so against any any principles of de- of human decency and and of concern for humanity. How devoid it was of of those principles. And so, you know, I look at the consequences, and I. Uh, that that are writ large on the world stage, and and I I have no doubt whatsoever that I had to do I had to take that stand, and I'd do it again. And I'll tell you, there still should be some justice rendered in the name of the American people, in the name of the people of Iraq, for the lies that took us to war. What was the crime of the century? I mean, it, and it precipitated the complete destruction, not only of Iraq, but the region at large, Dennis, paved the way for so much hardship. It's it's too much to honestly bear to even talk about the depths of suffering um, on a human level that were caused by, by this callous... I don't even know what you could call it. I mean, it was just deliberate. I mean, that that's the thing. It was it, we were knowingly lied into this, um, and that is the most horrific part about it. It it was. Yeah, uh, I, I I will tell you. I mean, even you know, as I think about it, then you know, and I do all the time. You just realize that how our entire social, you know, reality depends on on truth. And you realize how how a lie can destroy a country. So you know, and and how a lie can destroy a city. And that's why you know, in in the division of light and power, you know, I wasn't called upon just to stand up for an electric system. I was called upon to stand up for the truth. And you know, I'm not self righteous. I'm not somebody who believes that I'm better than anyone else, and I'm sure not holier than now. But, you know, there comes a time in every one of our lives where we just have to decide if we're going to take a stand or not. 
or if we're just uh, being blown along like some uh, ephemeral uh, flotsam and jetsam uh, to be uh, crushed by forces uh, beyond our understanding. No, 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 no. We, uh, the very essence of our, huma- of our humanity is to assert ourself in the moment. And that's what I did. And you were certainly no stranger to media attacks, as you documented in your book. I mean, this is, you know, you were subject to a complete propaganda campaign. And that certainly continued, which I'm sure your experience in Cleveland prepared you for. But it certainly continued throughout your congressional career. It continues continues to this day. Yeah, exactly. As I was looking up articles about your mayoral run, they mention every controversial thing you've ever said, right? Like they just throw everything out there within the first paragraph. And it's like, how how are these things relevant to your well, wait, that, Listen, that's fair game. But, you know, the to, to continue to be attacked for, uh, uh, for saving the electric system is a commentary on how, how deeply misled people uh, were and how history is just a testimony of the victors. And so, yeah. you know, I'm still at it. I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not done yet. And uh, I'm, uh, you know, I'm still very much in the contest in Cleveland. And this book, Dennis, yeah, the 660-page book is part of the testament to uh, not just Cleveland's history, but Cleveland's present as well. Uh, I'll never forget, and I, I'm sorry to touch upon this again, but I just think that it needs to be said. Um, I'll I'll never forget when Nancy Pelosi said impeachment was off the table for George Bush, because that was a, a radicalizing moment for me to kind of understand that, you know, Democrats who I thought were actual an actual opposition party were essentially complicit in these crimes, that there would be no accountability uh, You know, had you already kind of come to terms with that, that your own party, was working in concert with essentially the Bush crime syndicate and that there would be no accountability? Or was that kind of an awakening moment for you as well? uh, Anybody who thinks that political parties are somehow the uh, font of truth and uh, justice and mercy uh, better start reading another comic book because there's, it is, it is comical. You know, parties are platforms that are used to push all kinds of ideas. Sometimes those ideas can be beneficial to people. Other times it's just kind of a crude debating society where uh, people are manipulating uh, the players from behind the scenes where they're, you know, uh, standing by a cash register, you know, totaling their uh, gains uh, with every uh, legislative move. So, you know, I have a different approach to this. And to me, I really believe there is such a thing as government of the people. I believe there is such a thing as uh, a, a definable public interest. And so that's why I took the stand that I did that's recounted in uh, the Division of Light and Power. You know, I really I really appreciate this opportunity to um, to be on with you. I'm going to have to move on right now because I, I have... Uh, appointment stacking up as a result of my uh, okay. congressional or, or my mayoral race. So okay. I, I, I really, I appreciate that you've taken so much time to uh, get into the nitty gritty 
of not just a book, but of you know the thinking behind it and, and the action that takes place uh, behind it and the reasons why it takes place. No problem, Dennis. Um, can you leave us with some with uh, just a note about how you can, you know, in your mayoral run, you're you're very passionate about anti-war issues. You wanted to create the Department of Peace and all of that. And so, what are you hoping to achieve? How can you? Well, you know, safety is a big urge issue. We've people got to, to demilitarize their own communities. Yeah. Thank you. Um, right now, Cleveland uh, is getting overrun by a criminal element. We have one of the highest, uh, we may have the highest per capita homicide rate, uh, we, shootings, uh, carjackings, uh, neighborhoods are, are under a siege. And so, you know, I've talked about the need to establish public safety, but from the standpoint of a transformational model, which uh, where we create a civic peace department of which one element is law enforcement. But we need to look at the root causes of violence and try to address them while at the same time we're trying to uh, protect our streets. And another element of it is restorative justice. I mean, our whole system needs a rework. A local government's a good place to, to begin that. But, um, you know, right now, just a few blocks from my home last night, there was shootings uh, that happened on the west side of Cleveland. And you know, it brings home the reality that so many people across the city are dealing with where it's just not safe. So a mayor has to has to provide for the safety of the people. Now, if people want information about that campaign, uh, they can go to Kucinich.com uh, and, uh, uh, and, and get that. You know, if they're interested in helping in some way, they can do that as well. Thank you again for the chance to be with you on this uh, important interview. Thanks so much, Dennis, for your time. Good luck with everything.